Hi and welcome to the podcast, You're Having Tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Andrew O'Neill, who has written a book about the history of heavy metal. He's also a metal fan and a comedian and a friend. We sat in Mayleaf Tea House in Camden, which is a lovely place. You'll hear the gentle music playing in the background. Uh, I hope you don't mind that kind of ambient noise. I quite like it uh, for the mood of the podcast. We spoke about normal tea and how you have good faith discourse. We spoke about heavy metal, dreadlocks, cultural appropriation, plastic surgery, uh, gender performance, and a whole bunch of other things. I hope you enjoy listening to the podcast as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. Uh, I will do a slightly longer intro uh, this week because I have a few things to plug, but it shouldn't be more than about four and a half minutes. I try to keep it under that. Um, And I will do that by cracking on with, first of all, thank you to the Patreon supporters. And uh, that's an incredible thing. It, It it shows me that there are people who value what I do. If it is of value to you and, and you can afford it, I, I really appreciate the support. It also means that I, I can say no to ads. I, I've been approached to do advertisements on this podcast and I've, I've said no so far. I don't think it's really compatible with the project here, um, which is for me to be able to have rational gentle, compassionate, interested, difficult conversations um, in a way that I think is is lacking in the world. And I, I don't know that that would be compatible with, with running ads, even if it were for products that I, you know, bought myself or believed in myself. There's something about it that would make me feel a little bit uncomfortable with the, with the, with being able to have loaded conversations in an unloaded way, if I had stakes on the line with with other shareholders than, I guess, my own <laughs> reputation, uh, I think that would make it more uncomfortable to be able to have these conversations very freely. Uh, so thank you to all the Patreon sub- subscribers. It It is both incredible. It means that I can do what I do without taking on ads. And it also is, is lovely, just on an emotional level. I am going to plug my, if you are in London, filming Ethos. I'm doing a filming of my last one-hour solo show, Ethos, at the Museum of Comedy on the 17th of February. And tickets are available online. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you get one free ticket for every ticket you buy. And so you just email me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. Tell me that you've bought the ticket and I'll put a ticket on the door for you. Uh, If you're not in London, I will be putting that out as some sort of filmed version of itself as soon as possible, as soon as I can get it edited. And I'll tell you about that, presumably in a similar intro to this. I will also be attending the Bugle tour that Andy is doing. I'll be Andy Zaltzman is doing a Bugle a tour with the Bugle in America. I will be present via Skype. I'm trying to convince him to let me uh, put my face on an iPad and, and so that I can talk to you after the show, like as though I were really there. I, I hope that is possible. I will try and make that possible. I think that would be fun. I'll be in Sydney, Melbourne, and Perth. Uh, comedy festivals for my new with my new show Mythos. Uh, when that is written, I will be there. I'll also be about around London and in Edinburgh with that same show. Uh, follow me on Twitter if you want to know dates. I will put them up there at Alliterative A L I T E R A T I V E. There are Audible documentaries available if you're in the UK or Australia. One on meditation, one on kindness, uh, one on habit change, and one that's coming out on wellness. Whew. Oh, also I have a shop on my website. Um, There's some stuff up there. 
I think that's all. Also, if you've noticed an appreciable uh, uptick in the audio quality of this podcast, that is thanks to Ben Wren, who's been helping me out. And I really appreciate that help. And I hope you too appreciate the better audio quality. I think those are all the things I wanted to plug. I will now welcome you to listening to the rest of the podcast. On with the show. You're having tea with Alice. I'll see you next week. So, who are you and what are you drinking? I'm Andrew O'Neill. I'm drinking a green tea that you ordered. Yes, Jade Dragon. Jade Dragon. It's nice. We're in Mayleaf Tea House in Camden, which is one of my more favourite places. And I have had the ruby something, which is a darker black tea. I think it's a black tea. It's very nice. Yours is more fragrant. Yes. Mine's what I normally drink. Yours, you normally drink a sort of a black tea? I drink black tea. I mean, I drink PG tips with yeah. soy milk. You say that like By it's the a, gallon. You say that like it's a marker of some sort of... Class. <laughs> I, I don't know. Some identity marker. The idea of... I mean, I don't know this, this world in which PD, PG tips is loaded with meaning... It's, I know it as a brand. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just a go-to normal tea. Okay, and and you drink it because it's the go-to I like normal it. tea. No, I you like know, it. you like it. Yeah. If you like it, what has stopped you from getting other sort of fancier teas? I have got other fancier teas, yeah. and then I just keep going back to PG tips because it's nice. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I I'm not criticizing. I'm, of, I'm this. aware of this. I'm a fan of Assam. Yeah, I have that as a bit of a treat. But. So I guess there's a couple of ways to think about that. One is that the basic is good. You know, mm. I don't particularly, like, I very rarely go to fancy restaurants. I have a few friends who are foodies, and they'll take me to a fancy restaurant. Neil Downward, who used to run SBS Comedy, loves food, and whenever I go out with him, I know I'm going to have something that's, mm. you know, really interesting and elaborate. And, but by preference, if I had a billion dollars, I would not go to fancy restaurants more often. Right because there's something pleasing about plain food. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, comfort food. And equally, I think if I were poorer than I am, I would still seek the kind of plain food level that I'm on now. Right. You'd aspire to the plain food that you're eating yeah, now. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I don't think... I've never liked fast food, for example. Right. And, and so I would make lentils and brown rice rather than burgers burgers but at the same time if I had a billion dollars I would sometimes make burgers. lentils and microwave <laughs> some spinach and yeah. and have that as my meal so there is something I don't know maybe wrong with society that that sort of implies that your tastes are dictated by your position in some way or by that you have to always want more if you have access to it. I think Elvis is a good example of someone who knew what he knew what he liked. Yeah. And you know he had his in-house cook and would order, and it's fancy, but it's fancy in a very sort of rootsy, grounded way. Yeah. 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 Kind of. Yeah. I think the more generalised point that I was vague, vaguely thinking about is this idea that the more you have, the more you must want. Absolutely, it's and that's, that's why you can spend... There's, there's no upper limit on how much you can spend on a watch, mm. you know. You can spend infinity money on... It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, the idea or yachts. Of, 
not just living within your means, but living the way you like and that not being above your means. Yeah. I, I think is sort of unusual and not I've, common enough. I think I've got a platonic ideal of a cup of tea yep. and a well-brewed cup of PG tips fulfills that. Yeah. And anything else, nice though it is, isn't quite that. Do you want a cup of tea? Yeah. <laughs> because to my mind, do you want a cup of tea means yes or no, not and then what tea do you want? That yeah. isn't a... I mean, if you go, do you want some fa- I've got some fantasy tea, if you want some fantasy tea, and then that becomes a whole... I mean, look, here's, here's the thing. I didn't know that... It's that, a different experience. Yeah. And a lot of it's to do with nostalgia and childhood and my upbringing and that kind of thing. But, it's, you know, I, I didn't know that coffee was something you brewed until I was at university. I didn't know that instant coffee wasn't coffee. That was a form of convenient a convenient form for this thing which you brew. I didn't know that. My friend uh, Victoria, who was my best friend at university, was uh, similar, I think, to you in that we would go out for tea and that's one of the places where, one of the places and times where I kind of cultivated my love of tea. I Mm. I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm not a tea snob, but I like nice tea. Yeah. And I like... You're just a snob in all other areas of your life, aren't you? Class and... (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I just like um, I like the process of tea I like the excuse of tea mm. in that tea lasts as long as you want it to last coffee lasts as long as it lasts yeah uh, and that you can just sit for hours and hours and hours or you can have one cup and leave and that's all appropriate and sort of under the umbrella of of tea but uh, she would the first cup of tea for her every day had to be builder's tea what she called builder's yeah, right. tea which was <laughs> PG tips or yeah. twinings or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> They're not twinings. Not twinings. <laughs> See, I don't know the class thing, but straight up cheap home yeah. brand. Tetley. Tetley and with a lot of milk. Right. And that was it for her. Yeah. I, I, I find it interesting as a keyhole into the way people think about the world because it's, as, like, it's a maximum, maximum a dollar a tea bag. You know, even if you're getting the fanciest of fancy, fancy, fancinesses. So then at that point it just becomes sort of a a beautiful construction about what you like and what you want to say about yourself. I I noticed something in the way I I made tea at home which made me think I was self-centred, if not selfish, self-centred. Oh, I like it. Tell me more. When make, so, so Stephanie, my wife, and I drink tea all day and because um, I get up later than her, she usually makes me a cup of tea in the morning. I try and have her a cup of tea for her when she gets home from work. Um, what I do so is far, I, squeeze, so I squeeze my tea bag. She doesn't like her tea bag squeezed, but what I've started doing is squeezing hers over mine before I put it in the little where the tea bags go so that they're not too wet and they don't make the, recy- the compost box box too wet but I noticed that I was pouring the water on my tea before hers every time out of habit and I was like is that because subconsciously I want to have the hottest water and the the better (laughs) cup of tea and that was actually a dick move and so I reversed that there's like I've got some mates that went to Eton right and when I was in punk bands in the 90s we played with this other punk band that turned out they all went to Eton 
a guy called Frank Turner, who's now a famous musician, but and Ben and Chris were the other two in the band. Chris told me that they had a system at Eton where um, if you're if you're divining cake or pudding, you have to you have to cut the slice that the other person gets, and if you do it that way, then it's always gonna you're always gonna be fair because what's left for you is yeah. So that's oh, the, that's clever. I mean, that's nice. Yeah. And not the normal stereotype of the way that people are trained at Eton to behave. The, those three completely bucked all the Eton stereotypes, apart from having loads of money. I mean, they, you know, but they, they're, I mean, Ben, you could talk to, I'm going to Ben Stag there in a few weeks. You could talk to Ben all night and not realise he's for money. Until you, until you hear him on the phone to his mum. <laughs> and then the voice, the voice changes. Well, I, I live with Ben for quite a long time. Ben so does his accent change or? Yeah. He, he talks. He talks like me, and then, oh God! Like on the phone, he will properly, oh God! <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's quite funny. He's a nice guy. Um, and there was a thing. There was an interesting thing with Chris. Chris is one of the nicest people I've ever met. Genuinely, like he, he makes he makes significant effort to be fair and to be nice. And he's a very gentle guy. And um, but when we first met them, they were still they were still at school. And um, I was at university up here. And we went to a cafe in Soho. We ordered our black coffees. And Chris sort of didn't look at the waitress and he kind of waved his hand and went, black coffee, and carried on talking. And he, went, he walked off and I went, what the fuck was that? I was like, what? And he was he, like, what, 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 what? You were really rude. And he was so upset. Because he had no idea that that was rude. He didn't know. He, this is a guy who, like, no one, he'd never met anyone who'd worked in a shop before, you know? <laughs> like, literally hadn't, you know, as a, as socially. These were kids who, they were in, like, the sixth form at Eton. They had people cleaning their rooms. They, they just, it was never a thing. And, and then explaining to him, that's a human being. She deals with people all day. Just a little bit of eye contact and thank you makes a huge difference and he's like oh right and immediately he changed and immediately he took that on board but it was amazing watching someone who was such a nice guy his social conditioning led him to just being like you know well this is one of the, the interesting i think this kind of branches off in a number of interesting directions one one being this idea that i see more and more and more that people should know better <laughs> and when, when people have made mistakes or said things that are wrong or insensitive or even cruel, that the idea that they should know better and should always have known better, mm. as, though, as though all three-year-olds weren't sociopaths mm -hmm. and we learn how to treat other people and that to a certain extent and for a certain period of our lives is entirely out of our control. Whether or not you believe in free will, yeah. the people you surround yourself with are the people who shape what you think is appropriate behaviour. Even so, in, uh, in Myanmar, at that time Burma, in the 70s and 80s, when my father's generation was discovering Burmese Buddhism, and they'd go to this meditation centre outside Yangon, and they would, at that time, it was 24-hour visas, so they'd go in, they'd meditate for 24 hours, and then they'd get back out to Hong Kong <laughs> and then do it again because they were so keen on this new thing that they were doing and mm. so excited about the idea of enlightenment. And there was all the cool, like, Buddhist slang of, like, dropping was the idea. It was called dropping. Okay. It was falling off, you know, off your sense of the world and seeing reality as it was. Yeah. Um, but uh, at that time when they arrived in, uh, in the meditation centre, there were spittoons in the corners. 
And you'll notice this if you do go there. I don't know how much the culture has changed since the borders have opened up, but uh, people <coughs> will snort, you know, like snort snot in their noses rather than blowing their nose. Yeah, right. Sort of the, the polite thing to do is keep it inside yeah. rather than... And I think in Japan also you're not meant to blow your nose in public, so the idea is that it's not rude to make these horrifying snorting <laughs> noises and then spit it into a spittoon. Wow. But, it is, but it is rude to blow your nose. Get rid of it and put it in your pocket but and keep it on your person. Also, chewing betel nut and, and tobacco and spitting right. that as well. But that, I, th I think that's the, the example because in that case there isn't a right thing or a wrong thing. That's just your cultural norms. But yeah. the kind of visceral horror you feel as somebody who wasn't brought up with a spittoon in a room. That's just the idea of a bowl of snot in the corner. Not just that, but it's communal mixed snot is so hor viscerally yeah. horrifying. Fully. And so, of course, in, you know, in the way that people do, these lovely Burmese people thought, oh, well, we're making people uncomfortable, we'll stop doing that. Hmm. Not because they thought that it was wrong or because they realised that it was wrong, but because they realised it made people uncomfortable. And so in that case, the kind of <coughs> Western norm won out by virtue of increased horror. <laughs> um, but, there's a sort of, but there's a Trump factor, isn't there, with disgust? Mm. If you're disgusted by something, you can't really help it. And but so then you that doesn't go, well, carry for something like gay marriage. I don't think that's disgust, though. I think that's a different thing. I don't think it isn't disgust. I mean, I think for people who are brought up in a homophobic way, the things that they are told, the same reason that you are horrified by a bowl of snot is that at some point in your childhood, your parents said, that's disgusting, it's rude, that, you know, don't pick your nose in public, it'll make people The difference upset. between disgust and rude, disgusting and rude, I think is that key difference. I don't think it, I don't think it is. Really, because I think it is. I mean, I mean, I don't think there's anyone saying, "Don't be a, a gay; it's rude." <laughs> but for, maybe don't talk about sex. Don't talk about your sexual desire; it's rude. And then on top of that, the idea that it's viscerally wrong, that it's upsetting, that it's dirty. Yeah, it's that difference between taboo and physical aversion. Yeah, I Do think it's. I mean? a, I read a scientific uh, paper that said it's very easy to uh, inculcate a disgust response right. in people. So to make something seem disgusting is quite an easy psychological mm. trick. Um, it's like a hair trigger, evolutionarily de derived hair trigger, because it's useful. It's more useful to be disgusting, yes. disgusted by something that's not harmful than to not be disgusted at something that can Absolutely. give you the lurgy. And you can see that kind of that um, evolutionary thing go haywire with eating disorders or yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of purity orthorexia uh, where you cut different food groups out, and mm. that's a disgust response that you've kind of deliberately cultivated in yourself and has kind of bolted out of your control. Yeah. So, like, I think that a little bit of a, of a more understanding about these kind of, like, isms, racism or sexism or any of those things, like, it's one thing to go, okay, it's hurtful to me that you find me disgusting because it's <laughs> the most hurtful thing is to be found disgusting. It's a terrifying thing to be found disgusting because it says that you're subhuman and that means you're in danger. I've been told to my face around the corner from here, you're fucking disgusting. Yeah. Twice on the same road crossing on my birthday. Oh. That was a fun birthday. And that's, 
incredibly hurtful, right? Yeah, it was... Back then, now I think I've got a much thicker skin, but then it was... It was cut to the quick. Yeah, and it, <coughs> it's hurtful, and in that instance, it's rude also. Mm. It's oh, a yeah. horrible thing to say to somebody. <laughs> it's a strange thing to say to someone. But then it comes down to a question of culpability <coughs> and responsibility. I would say they're responsible for being rude, but they're not necessarily responsible for being disgusted. Yeah. And that the disgust response is something that, as a social project, needs to be addressed rather than as an individual project because we don't naturally um, examine our own disgust responses. Yeah. You don't ever sit down and go, well, having my hands covered in shit, is that, <laughs> is that something I really should be disgusted by? Yeah, because they feel like reflex responses rather yeah. than higher brain function considered responses. And they're not at all. They are learned. Yeah. So then how much we have uh, responsibility to guide our own learning, to, to be rational about our learning processes, to, to unpack those learning processes and, and question them. I think that is the biggest question for me about how to respond when people are disgusted by me or by people I think are not disgusting, <laughs> yeah. you know? Well, the, the why is... Cause I, when I wrote my radio show about homophobia, I examined what homophobia comes from. Mm. And reading studies of um, people who are in prison for homophobic acts of homophobic violence and things like that. And it, the interviews with them, it's like candy floss. You're going to go, so, so why did you do it? Well, because what they do is wrong. Why is it wrong? And then it, it kind of loops back on itself because... It wasn't like, it's because of this. It was because, well, we've decided it's wrong. And, and that violence comes from um, shoring up societally derived norms and punishing people who, um, who breach those taboos. Um, and it seems that whenever, whenever you follow someone down the rabbit hole of their homophobia, it doesn't come down to because this because that it becomes because we think it's wrong yeah and and the idea as well i think that's that's one of the problems <coughs> with the idea of wrong is that it very rarely comes down to how wrong <laughs> you know i mean this is a, a really there are very few people who have a nuanced understanding of how wrong they think any given thing is <laughs> yeah and you see that in discourse all the time that people will say well uh, this Wikipedia chap, he wrote a third of all of Wikipedia and he was sort of publicly exposed for being a bit fat and dorky looking. And I wrote something about him saying, oh, well, this man's done more for the sum of human knowledge probably than Johnson's Dictionary. Like, this is incredible. Of course, at some point in the near future, someone's going to tell me something horrible about him and that's, <laughs> that's the way the world works now. And someone came in and said, well, he supports Trump. He's a oh, Make God. America Great Again guy. <clears throat> and I thought, okay... He still added more to the sum of human knowledge than anyone. Yep. Like, I'm going to leave it to the crocodile god to weigh his heart <laughs> at the end. Like, I I'm not... Anubis, jackal-headed, throw it to the crocodile. Sorry. Um, Got to get your deities right. But that's, that's happening all the time. I mean, Jermaine Greer is the most, the most glaring example of that. Yeah. Someone who's done so much 
for feminism, mm. so much for women, so much for feminist theory. And she, ta she talks a massive load of shit, but she kind of always has about various different things. Yeah. She's brilliantly acerbic contrarian, and, and, and the great stuff that tumbled out of that is, should be held up and, and revered, and, and the other stuff pretty much ignored. Well, it's also with, with her, she sees part of her job as provocation. Yeah, totally. In a way that might be outdated nowadays because we have plenty of provoking people being provoking in good faith or yeah. bad faith, yeah, as it yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. She, I think, really believes in provocation as a part she, of human progress. Yeah, and she believes in the marketplace of ideas, as a, yeah. you know, which is something I tried... I tried on Facebook a few years ago, and then a friend of mine who's a, a, an activist said she was very angry and upset with something I posted. Something along the lines of, stop making excuses. Dear everyone, stop making excuses for not being vegan. And um, you know, some people can't be vegan. Yes. Well, what? <laughs> you know, they, well then they're immediately excused, aren't they? Well, no, but that's not what you meant. Well, all right, fine, whatever. But I'm, I'm actually trying to, trying to cultivate that on my Facebook page again now, on my, my personal one. And I make a really big distinction between what the discussions I have in my personal life and the things I say as part of my public persona. Um, why do you make that distinction? Because... And why do you think it's important? Because the public persona stuff is supposed to be the end product of all this discussion and thinking and arguing that I'm doing in my personal life behind closed doors. Mm. I think we live in an, in an era where you can't really have those discussions in public because you can't go, what is wrong with this person doing this without someone going, this person doesn't think that that's wrong and yeah, therefore and let's hit him with this stick. I find that one of the more upsetting things is the idea that asking a question <clears throat> yeah. can be a provocation and of course it can be like it can be used as bullying and you have bad faith people and as somebody with for example Jewish heritage I would give very short shrift to the one in 20 people in the UK who would ask the question how can you prove the Holocaust happened like there are things that I yeah. that would enrage me and, yeah, and yeah, infuriate yeah. me so like making these kind of categorical claims is something that makes me uncomfortable but I think as a general rule, it is more good to have more free speech with all of the downsides, with all of the impacts, with all of the suffering that will inevitably result yeah. from more free speech. It is better to have that than to have strong censorship. Yeah, and to have this, yeah, because socially censorship or, implies moral authority. Mm. And I don't want the government to have that <laughs> or the police to have that. Or, and you also know. people. I don't want people to have that. People yeah. are stupid. 50% yeah. of people are below average. <laughs> I don't want them controlling what I say. Uh, and even really clever people are often very stupid about one or two things. Of course. But I like this, this distinction that you're making between public and private because I've always drawn a very strong line between the things I'll talk about on stage or in public and the things that are yeah. private. Yeah. Maybe too much of a line when it comes to, for example, the industry and <laughs> my friends in the industry and how much of that, you know, how much of my private life I keep private from them because they're work colleagues, but they're right, also... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's obviously where it gets more complicated. But I like the way you use your Facebook page to ask questions. Yeah, so 
two weeks ago I asked if anyone that I'm friends with is offended by white people with dreadlocks. Yeah. And I didn't ask. And then a load of people went, no, I'm not. I was like, no, you didn't read the question. Uh, you know, there's that. Um, have you seen the first series of Blackadder? Uh, yes, yes, so I have. That amazing thing, you know. Does anybody does anybody know what happened to to, to the uh, the woman who they burnt? And it's just a bloke. <laughs> the other side of the field goes, "No, I don't." <laughs> and that's, that's that thing of people weighing in an argument, going, "Excuse me, I'd like you to know I've got nothing to contribute to this." Um, I found that an interesting discussion. It was, and there was, you know. What the, do you think were the more interesting points that came out of it? That there's a sharp distinction between the meaning of that in America and here. Yeah. Uh, number one. Number yeah, two. I used to have that a joke that I never put on stage of that getting offended by blackface is cultural appropriation. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, good. Keep that off the stage. Um, um, the th- the other th- really big th- part of it is that the subcultural aspect of British white people with dreadlocks is overlooked in the academic very much American derived argument against it mm. you know they're, get, they're get, getting cultural kudos and, and, and social currency from having this thing I'm like, my mates aren't <laughs> yeah. they're really not um, <clears throat> the current live guitarist for Napalm Death <laughs> isn't like and, and and I think I think there's that kind of like there was a little bit of it like you know sort of beautiful rich white twenty somethings at Coachella or something like that. That I think that's where the ire kind of has, has sort of come from. I mean you know my drummer's my drummer's mixed race. He's got dreadlocks. He has had rastas go. Why haven't you got a beard? <laughs> yeah. Right. That as a legitimate <laughs> someone whose religion it is asking a guy of mixed heritage why have you got that hairstyle when you haven't got the rest of it you know that is one thing and the, and the other thing that came I mean you know one person exposed himself as a as a as a racist and got chowed down by some of my black friends and I was like should I say anything I'm like oh, they're doing an excellent job and then actually what I did is I picked him up on another post he put and he has since deleted me from Facebook yeah. so there you go my he was, he was moaning about, <clears throat> well, he made an observation that Hermione in the Harry Potter stage play is black now. Yes. Which just seemed to not have a point other than being just basically racist. And I said, <laughs> are you actually racist? Or do you just like people thinking you're racist? And he didn't answer me and he has deleted me on Facebook. But anyway, so, <clears throat> it, but what was really nice was to be able to have a discussion that didn't end up in a slanging match and people seemed to listen to each other and several of my mates are like, well, he, you know, one of my mates, well, well, the reason I've got them is because my black girlfriend did them for me and it was a really big deal for her to do that for me and it, it really meant a lot to her and, you know, these are, there, there is a lot more nuance involved in, in that yeah, particular thing. I'm always, I'm always slightly uncomfortable with cultural appropriation arguments because they seem to make concrete <coughs> a hierarchy that need uh, yeah, yeah, that yeah. need not exist or doesn't always exist and is shifting and should be shifting. So making rules about that rules that are predicated on the existence of this hierarchy, yeah. I think, can make it can fix it. Yeah. In a way, 
like we can and, and when I say fix I don't mean solve I mean you mean make it fix in place fix in place which is not to say that you shouldn't note it or pay attention to it or be aware of it but giving it room to change and allowing yeah, yeah. it to change I think is important this in particular was, was, was one little like for me it was like an outlier within that within the whole argument about cultural appropriation that I think was an interesting area because particularly because of the subcultural aspect of it because of the fact that from my point of view all the people I know with dreads are doing it partly as an act of solidarity. Mm. You know, that's the like they are some of the most right-on allies that you know are possible to find, um, rather than this notion of a detached rich person plucking a look and adopting it for, as a costume. Yeah, well, or as a you know, as a as a as a look that they've entered into purely on an aesthetic level or you know yeah but then there's sort of three levels that come out of that number one is is how can you police how somebody feels about what they're doing so yeah yeah the idea of perhaps somebody does like the i think a good example would be japanese cultural aesthetics manga geisha Mm. samurai there's a lot of a lot of people who are fascinated by that aesthetic and they like it because it looks cool yeah and then they engage in it in a costumey way and then they learn more and then they become engaged with the culture in a kind of a deep and and meaningful way you know I know that has happened to a friend of mine in high school who's now living Mm. in Japan happily married sort of confronting some of the racism of Japanese people towards (laughs) white immigration and here's the thing with that as the uh, worldwide balance of power shifts towards the Far East as it's going to yeah. That stuff's going to suddenly be, be the, t- the seesaw will tip. And it's like, you know, there's basically nothing wrong with having uh, Americans within the notion of society because they're the ones in power. Yeah. Right? And when that becomes the Chinese, the, you know, or China rather, um, that again will have a different slant to it. Well, the second th- thing <coughs> is that I was brought up in this religion or culture or whatever you would like to call it philosophy burmese buddhism so i you know i went to the ear piercing ceremony when my brother ordained as a samanera young monk a novice monk and you know you wear the costume you wear your beautiful silk long jean mm. your beautiful lace uh, jacket and you wear a, a deva headdress and then you sit down and in my instance dad wouldn't let me get my ears really pierced so they did these little cool screw on earrings and <laughs> you know it was all it was all real. Yeah. My experience of that was real. But if you saw a photograph of me as a child in this costume, I, I then have to explain <laughs> my, that, it, that my race didn't have anything to do with any yeah. power dynamic in this. This was my, this is my culture, as much as it can be said to be anyone's culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, can yeah. ask my parents about... <laughs> how they felt about adopting Buddhist principles and going away from their religion and whether that's cultural appropriation or yeah, but that, what. You were already in it at that point. Yeah, yeah. I was born yeah, yeah. into it. You know, my dad always tells me when I was born that you know, he touched my nose you know, below my nose, above my upper lip and you know, got me to meditate as my first breath. Like that. He's right. very proud of that as a quite conservative Buddhist <laughs> A meditation teacher that mm. that he he feels very proud of that as my entry into the world. So then, where does that 
break down with this discussion? Are we telling people that they have to remain in their silos? Surely cross-pollination is important. And if cross-pollination is important, which I don't think anyone would argue with, who are we to police the process of cross-pollination that yeah. might begin with an, a sort of a prurient interest or a fetishization and yep. then become... An understanding. An understanding yeah. and a valuing. Or totally. it might not. But I don't think you can regulate that. No, I think you're right. Even yeah. if you do want to make people aware of it and yeah. have yeah. that be something that you should pay attention to more. You know, on a, on a fundamental level, um, I used to um, work in a shop at UCL and a bloke used to come in wearing a T-shirt that had a picture of Ozzy Osbourne on it and it said metal underneath it. <laughs> and I noticed that he wasn't doing the nod, the metal nod that you do when you see another metal head. Right, mate, right, little nod. And I'd be listening to metal and he wouldn't nod. And I noticed that, well, what's this guy's problem? Yeah. And then one day he's wearing the shirt and I went, do you like metal? He went, nah, just like the T-shirt. <laughs> and I sort of, you know, as I, as I, well, I wrote about this in my book, sort of, you know, and then, I, and then when I came round <laughs> in, the, in the hospital, um, uh, and then, and that to me is hilarious because I've never really got any social currency from being a metalhead, far from it. And, um, and then I read an interview with Rob Halford, who's the singer in Judas Priest, mm. who is one of the just most joyous people. His Instagram feed is absolutely wonderful. And someone asked him, you know, do you get annoyed when you see people wearing Judas Priest t-shirts that obviously aren't into it or they're selling it in, you know, high street shops? He went, and he's got such a pure, like, notion of heavy metal. He's going, no, but, you know, they'll look at the image and they're just like, you know, they're drawn to the power of heavy metal, you know, and that's like, and it doesn't matter <laughs> if they like the band, you know. They're, they're just, just them wearing it's a celebration of the power of heavy metal. And that is, and I, I don't agree with him, but I love that view. Like, all right, cool, that's, that's absolutely cool. Yeah. If anyone is the person who can say whether or not it's all right, <laughs> it's yeah. a man who toured the southern states of America dressed as a cartoon gay man while keeping wearing leather and spikes and a whip, keeping his sexuality a secret. <laughs> if anyone, if anyone can, can say yes or no to other people appropriating the look of metal, it's, it's Rob Halford. So. Like, I mean, like, even on a small scale, <clears throat> it can be annoying. Like when nerd culture became popular and oh, yeah, you know, weird, isn't it? people started wearing pretensy glasses or yeah. normcore clothes or... Just the T-shirt with the word nerd on it. Yeah. Going, no, you're not. And then, <laughs> Stop that. I mean, I, like as somebody who was bullied in school... Yeah for being a frizzy-haired know-it-all and not being able to keep my mouth shut in class. The, like, the enjoyment of Hermione Granger was an outrage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, how dare you? Like, yeah. how dare you like her now and not have liked me? Yeah, yes. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, I, 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 like, that's obviously a, a deeply different thing from... You know, being started on the, in the street for, for dressing metal, for being, you know, shouted and screamed out at school for being into metal and then go to Topshop when they're selling Metallica t-shirts. Well, that's very strange. And they're selling them to the people who very, bought it Yeah, absolutely. But that, there's a wider phenomenon here, which is that all bets are off as far as who is into what now. Yeah. Um, and kids now, teenagers, aren't, don't have subcultures anymore. It's gone, it's gone. Yeah. Metal as a subculture, is, is, is essentially dying off as a subculture. 
and, and every year I go to download, people there look less and less metal. Yeah. You know. Well, because you can listen to some metal songs and yeah. also to some Justin Bieber. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I think this is... Obviously, when we go from talking about racialized cultural appropriation to people dressing up like nerds... There is a footnote in my book that, that says I'm not quoting these things. Yes. <laughs> it seems like an illusion of the seriousness. But I think the, the point that underlies it is that people's problem is not with cultural appropriation. People's problem is with racism. Yeah, 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 totally. People's problem is with people who treat others as less than and that this is, is, is kind of a bit rich or an insult yeah, given a, the context. The, the phrase, it, that's a bit rich, is an excellent, an absolutely excellent uh, <laughs> analysis of it. It's a bit rich. It's a bit rich <laughs> given great. the context and, and, and yet... <laughs> I just feel like it's a misallocation of energy when the context, context, like, can we fight for a world where you can call someone fat and it's not an insult because fat people are not treated badly? Mm -hmm. I just want everyone to be able to use the N-word, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean, though? A thing is only an insult if there is a power imbalance. One second. Um... Just letting my wife know where I am. <laughs> it's like... Yes, it's... it's Well, absolutely, it's addressing a symptom and not addressing the, the, the core issue. It's like, it's, it's like you're due to have an operation to have your leg cut <coughs> off and your phone bleeps up a reminder and you smash your phone. <laughs> like it's, you're upset with the wrong thing yeah. here. You, you're displacing... How is your leg, by the way? It's still on. <laughs> it's holding on. For <laughs> I dear did life. put my back out the other day, uh, which is uh, mainly just because I hadn't been going. Okay, so it's like a causal chain here. I'll lay it out. But your posture suggests you could never put your back out. You're one of these people who looks like they've, you. You came out the you came out the womb. You were inculcated into <laughs> meditation, and then the Alexander <laughs> technique. <laughs> no, I, I I wasn't going to the gym in January. Because in January... You're doing no gym January, right? Yeah, because the gym in January is full (laughs) Full of of people who are only going to the gym for January. And I... It's always... That's the excuse I used in January (laughs) as well. (laughs) (laughs) I won't bother. It'll be full full of people. people doing everything wrong and in the wrong... Culturally appropriate in your fitness regime. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just getting in the way and... You you don't even like fitness. (laughs) You don't even into it. You're just doing this because you don't even like fitness. You just hate yourself. (laughs) I I just... So I haven't been going to the gym, which means that the other day I put my back out. My back's always been a bit iffy since I broke it when I was 16, 17, or fractured it. Broke is exaggerated. Um, The bloke who fixed my bike when I did my big bike ride in in, uh, Scotland in October told me that he had to change his job because he had a car accident and burst his spine. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's amazing. So I couldn't do that anymore, so... Does he mean he ruptured a disc? I don't know, and I didn't go into it because I was so overwhelmed with the with notion the of just the thing bursting. It's like a I mean, bag it's sort of, of astonishing to me that people's backs... Two-thirds of people will have serious back pain uh, chronically in their lives at some point. That's because we shouldn't be standing up. We're idiots. But it's the, middle, it's the middle bit of you. Like, how is that the most vulnerable point? Why don't your toes fall off more than that? Because we're... 
we're, we, we haven't evolved enough yet to, to walk around. Well, here's the thing. Mm. We're supposed to be dead now. <laughs> yep. We're supposed to have bred and be dead now. So we're not, we're not evolutionarily useful. I'm saying this on my back and now I can... That's because um, people keep banging people with back issues. It's is the real issue. Absolutely. Who are, who are over 20. We've, we've shortchanged our no, own evolution. Jimmy Page had it right. That's just, <laughs> just getting it out of the way. <laughs> or is it the other way around? Do you need to... No, actually, I think it's the other way around, isn't it? If, you, if, if they passed a, a strict law that you couldn't have sex, you couldn't procreate before the age of 40... Within a few years, life expectancy would then go up and up and up. And then you'd make it 50. Oh, interesting. Because the diseases that take people out in their 20s are not there in someone who's 40. And then that is actually a sort of... At least at least as a thought experiment, a kind of proven way of becoming uh, immortal. Well, there was that horrifying immortal. legal case in China where a man sued his wife for fraud uh, as a subsequent thing on a case after suing her for, I think adultery because their daughter was according to him ugly <laughs> and she had had a plastic a surgery million, yeah a hundred thousand <laughs> hundred thousand uh, dollars worth of plastic surgery uh, hadn't told him about it before they met obviously and then they got married and he didn't recognize in their daughter her wow and and or himself was he successful in this i don't know Legal i think action. he was I don't know the outcome of the case. I remember reading a news article about it at the time, uh, possibly really good... for a bugle or a rational fear. <laughs> right, right. Um, one of those. I never read the news unless I'm forced to write about the news. It's a good idea. Uh, in which case, then it doesn't. It's not so personal. It's just a puzzle. How do I make this horrifying thing funny? Yeah. What's the angle? There's a really good down the line bit where they uh, someone rings in to talk about people getting plastic surgery to, and then they breed ugly children and then the children need plastic surgery and then they breed even uglier children and then people are having plastic surgery just to look human. <laughs> yeah, I mean, plastic surgery happen. is uh, an investment in the plastic surgeons of the future. All plastic surgeons should spend one generation giving everybody plastic surgery for free and they will guarantee the income of plastic surgeons for future generations. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Have you considered having anything done? Uh, not in any serious way, I think. Um, I uh, no, other than the sort of appeal of being able to control your external. Mm. That's why I'm heavily tattooed. Yeah. Genuinely. Yeah, that you. But there's nothing about myself that I dislike enough Good. to change it at the moment, um, and I also sort of on a principled level mm. feel like I'm fine good and I, also I don't really identify myself as, as how I look <laughs> I think of myself as a sort of a floating brain and I vaguely resent anybody engaging with me as anything other than a floating brain right um, so m most of my first sort of process of meeting someone is sort of trying to get that stuff out of the way of just look into my eyes and <laughs> yeah, to pop your eyes out just look yeah, through just, look just through look the in, holes look in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, my, my gender dysphoria has made me has put, made me think down the lines of plastic surgery but then what, I wouldn't be able to stop mm. that's the thing I, you know I occasionally think of getting my brow my brow ridge addressed and not in any, to any serious degree, but going, you know, maybe, I should, you know, that would be, 
the, the, the first thing I would do to make myself look mas- less masculine would be to get rid of my slightly Neanderthal brow ridge. Mm. As soon as I've done that, I probably want to change my jawline. As soon as I've done that, I probably want to adjust my nose. And then you go, right, will you? Yeah. There's no way you're going to achieve looking how you want. Well, this is sort of... From this to that, so... An interesting thing <clears throat> about, about gender affirmation surgeries or just any kind of plastic surgery, really, of it is... There's an underlying thing of how you should look. Absolutely. That I have a problem with at, oh, in totally. principle. Yeah. So that, that you know, you know, sometimes I'll wear makeup, sometimes I won't. It doesn't make me more or less a woman. I, I, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. really. You know, my, my, oh, my, absolutely. my refusal to wear high heels doesn't make me more or less... A woman. I resent the fact that dress going out going out with no effort means I look like a guy. But the f- in order to look f- kind of like feminine, I have to do a load of stuff to this thing for then society to kind of go, ah, here is feminine. And yeah. all of my and my all my entire notion of my masculinity, femininity is societally derived, anyway. Yes, and I think because I didn't think of myself as a girl, mm. the, the the distinctions between masculine and feminine in my upbringing were always my twin brother was Henry and I was Alice. Mm-hmm. It wasn't he was boyish and yeah, I was yeah, girlish yeah, yeah. in the ways that he was boyish and the ways that I was girlish. So you're pretty agendered in your thinking. I, I think so. I mean, according to some internet survey I did once, yes. <laughs> but in, in, in the, that... that my brother is musical, he's sensitive. He's probably more sensitive than I am in, yeah. in many ways. He's more cautious than I am. And those are characteristics that are traditionally considered feminine, but I didn't, I didn't realise that until yeah. probably high school when he went to a boys' school and I went to a girls' school, which in some ways reinforces gender and in other ways frees you from it. I agree with that because I went to a boys' school and the range of characteristics displayed means that... And, yeah, it's it, in some ways it does reinforce yeah, yeah, these yeah, yeah. things, but also as an outsider <coughs> in that system, it it breaks those things down in the same way as yeah. an all ladies comedy bill is infuriating, and particularly when they do it in a pink poster with baby sham, yeah, 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 and and so on. But if you go to an all female lineup, whether it's a deliberately so or but accidentally, you realise that they are not. There is no such this thing. This is not as a genre. A, yeah, it's not a genre. Yeah. It's just it's a relatively arbitrary typecasting because you'll yeah. have one-liners you'll have music co- comedians you'll have graphic sexual comedy and it's either good and or it's bad and that's all just you and that's all just right? me yeah <laughs> um, I always say of my shows like I need to kind of rein it in a little bit but I always put so many different things in because if you're not liking it it'll be something really different in a minute yeah I sort of I have that Explanation, but not that comes from a different place because I my stuff's already different because I couldn't choose what type of comedy I wanted to do, so I just sort of try and do it all. Yeah, but there is that notion of like, don't worry if you don't like that element of it, you'll oh, like yeah. it. Yeah, but also if you're enjoying this, don't worry, it won't last. <laughs> yeah, 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 you won't be burdened with pleasure for very long. <laughs> yeah, so this idea of, 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 of I guess, of, of what it is to be a woman. Or to be feminine. You know, I got to play Richard III yeah. in my school play and I didn't think of that as making me more or less anything. We're heading towards <coughs> the most contentious current yeah. <laughs> issue, I mean, which, is, is. which is uh, feminist gender theory versus trans activism. 
Yes. Which I am going to swerve the podcast bus the, away from. Okay, I'm happy to do that. Um, but it is an interesting one. It's and a I very it's interesting one, and we will talk about this. Off, <laughs> off camera. Well, uh, we should wind up anyway because we've been talking uh, for a while. But uh, first of all, I will say thank you for coming on the podcast. Where can people find you online? Um, if you if you search for Andrew O'Neill comedy on any of the things, you will find me there. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, I think my MySpace account is still around. I think. Don't know what's on it. <laughs> Thank you for having tea with me. You're very welcome. Thank you.